Welcome to the Live Well, Perform Better podcast, brought to you by Below the Line. My name is David Duggan, and I am part of a team made up of experts from the worlds of business, elite sport, adventure, and health and well-being. We are coaches, mentors, and advisors to some of the world's biggest companies and organizations, as well as smaller businesses, entrepreneurs, and people looking to make their mark on the world. Our guiding mantra at Below the Line is live well, perform better. What does that mean, you might ask? Good question. Maybe the easiest way to describe it from our perspective is finding the formula that works for you when it comes to things like looking after your physical and mental health, running your business, developing your career, leading your people, or simply being able to show up as brilliantly as possible into your own life, both for yourself and those around you. That's why each week I sit down with a member of our team or an invited guest for a conversation that focuses on the question, what do the words live well, perform better mean to you? This question is a way into exploring with people from a range of different backgrounds, industries and disciplines, what are the practices, techniques, habits or ideas that they use to help them to show up and be at their best in all areas of their lives, whether that's as CEOs, leaders or managers, or as parents, family members or friends. We keep it short and sweet so that you can extract all the good stuff and get on with the rest of your day and hopefully put some of this knowledge, experience and expertise into play for yourself. This week, I am delighted to welcome another very special guest, Claire Carroll of Project Unbound. Initially beginning her working life in marketing, Claire's career trajectory is one that has followed the developments and innovations in technology that have defined our lives over the past 20 years. And in that time, she has worked in and held leadership roles in areas ranging from online marketing and the attention economy, to persuasive design and understanding people's behaviour in the online world. It is these experiences that have led Claire to what she is now doing, which is working as a consultant in ethics and technology, where she is exploring some of the most challenging questions at the interface between technology and human behaviour. A voracious reader, a deep thinker and an eloquent speaker, Claire gave me a fascinating insight into her own story, her own coaching journey and the impact it has had on her life, as well as the meaning and purpose that is driving her work on the frontiers of the technological revolution we are continuing to live through. This was a great conversation with someone who was willing to talk candidly and openly about the challenge of personal growth and how and why doing what she describes as the work on herself has made all the difference to who she is today and what she is doing now. Please subscribe at www.belowtheline.ie where you can stay up to date with the podcast, as well as exclusive online events and sessions, including our Press Pause coaching community and our story coaching programs. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Um, but look, I'll, I'll just kick in with the first question, which is, please tell me, why do you do what you do? <laughs> it's such a loaded question, that one. It, it definitely, uh, you definitely kind of uh, made me stop in my tracks when I read it and really started to think about it because it does, it's pretty confronting um that really kind of gets to the heart of of why uh, why I do what I do every day so my main interest uh David is in the area of ethics and technology and so um I've worked over the last approximately 20 years in the area of technological innovation and um with a kind of a marketing background and I suppose when I look back on you know uh, my career it was kind of in keeping pace with the trajectory of the web and what was happening in the world of digital media as we were all kind of getting getting to grips with the exciting new world of um, everyone having broadband and internet and smartphones and all that fun stuff. Um, 
Uh, but I was also, I suppose, part of a, uh, a Wild West system um, that was really driving what is now known as the attention economy. And it was driving it through the techniques of what's known as persuasive design. So um, I suppose really just trying to persuade people to engage with certain content in order to click on something, which was likely some type of sponsored content or an ad. Um, and then that obviously drove revenue and profits for advertisers and for um, tech platforms. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you know, it's a free market economy. And um, but I think what we've seen, if you go back to Tim Berners-Lee, uh, who was the guy that invented the web in its current format, um, you go back 30 years ago to what his mission and uh, ambition for the web was, uh, I think we've gone seriously off-road um, relative to the principles of openness and um, access. And uh, I suppose not having such a profit-driven agenda uh, within the internet economy. Um, and so, you know, even as recently as the other day, Joe Biden's State of the Union address directly correlates the mental health crisis amongst the youth in the United States with social media. Um, and so I've, I've been part of the system that to some extent co-created that context. Um, and I was in very senior leadership roles in digital agencies. And at the time, it was all just gravy. It was just a gold rush, you know. And I'm talking about kind of 2005 to 2015. And, uh, and then, of course, the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal broke. And it wasn't new news to me. Um, I had written a blog post in 2008 uh, making the kind of not, it wasn't a plea, but it was kind of asking the industry, should Facebook be a utility? And that was only a couple of years after Facebook had gone public, as in public outside of Harvard. It wasn't actually launched as a public company for a few years later. Um, and so I was naturally ridiculed um, and uh, kind of laughed out of the place. But it did concern me even back then that the, the, the usage of social networking platforms was becoming so prolific that it was beyond just you know, interest, an interesting place to spend time. Um, and so with all of these, I suppose, problems that we're now faced with, um, we have a lot of rebalancing to do. And the, the piece that's missing is um, the role of ethics in the design of technology, in its development, and in its longer-term governance. Um, and that I don't, that can get misconstrued with, you know, killing all the fun and wanting to police it and slow it down. And, you know, we can't move fast and break things um, <laughs> if you've got an ethicist at the table. Uh, and yet I think we've, we've broken plenty. And now we realize that actually it's not about slowing innovation down or stifling it, but it's about having different voices at the table, including philosophers, social psychologists, um, ethicists, to try and help us, you know, um, have a, a, a more balanced context for which we can all participate and have access, but not necessarily be staring down the barrel of what are extremely serious problems in content moderation, in addiction, um, and by way of, you know, biases in terms of machine learning um, and how we need to navigate that. So, yeah, that's that's kind of where my, uh, my main interest uh, lies. And the last few years I was with um, a big management consulting firm and got to do some really interesting work. Um, because I, I kind of, I walked away from the digital media marketing world to some extent, and I built a portfolio um, uh, uh, in the area of data privacy and what does data privacy need to look like in terms of digital identity systems and um, what 
some emerging technologies that may may hit or may not. But ultimately, it was about, I suppose, having a wonderful opportunity to kick around in a sandbox and and um, and, and prototype some of that. And some of the work was brought to the United Nations, was presented at the World Economic Forum, was published in the Harvard Business Review. So I was really lucky um, to get to work with such brilliant people and meet some fantastic people uh, throughout that experience. And um, so, yeah, I suppose why I do what I do is driven by um, a degree of, of insight from my experience and, and wanting to rebalance those skills. It sounds to me like that um, that blog post from 2008, it's never left your mind, if you like, but it's it's now what's potentially really driving what you're doing now. Yes. Um, and it's really important to say, I don't want to be overly diplomatic in this. You know, it, this is not binary. You know, these companies, Google, Facebook, TikTok, you know, all of them, uh, there are a number of them uh, that are considered to be under the banner of big tech, Apple, Amazon. We, we know them all. They're not bad or good. Um, and I think it's important that we don't vilify them. Uh, there's some fantastically talented people with the right intentions working there. But this is about a systemic approach to, um, to, to kind of rebalancing this. So yes, that I suppose the impetus behind that blog post hasn't left me. And yet I also see the fantastic upside of what these companies do. You know, they drive micro economies in emerging markets. You know, there are so many smaller and um, small to medium enterprises all over the world that wouldn't be in existence or wouldn't have the growth they've had without these companies. So um, this is complex and uh, it, it, it's important, I think, that we have a level of collaboration and respect amongst all the people involved to try and figure it out because the nature of the time we're living through at the moment means that things are very polarized so you're either on one side or the other and we know that that's ironically exacerbated by uh, social media so uh, that's not helpful that's not going to get us anywhere um, and so I think yeah I think there's and I do, I do think there's there's good intentions and appetite for this but I but also I think it is going to take regulation it's not unlike big oil or big tobacco um, and we can see the regulation coming and so I think there's a new a new chapter ahead where this will start to flourish in terms of the role of ethics and, and responsibility in tech design. If I move on to my next question then um, uh, the below the line strap line that we we have is this idea of, of, of live well and perform better and Part of my uh, reason for doing this podcast is to talk to people like you and find out what does that mean to you? So I'd love to hear your take on what that means to you. Um, I think for me, it means, and I, what I, I'm going to say now is absolutely not what I would have said five years ago or 10 years ago. So it was interesting as I thought about this to even um, observe uh, how I'm answering it differently today. But for me, live well and perform better means being open and curious and, and as unattached to outcomes as I can be. Um, and that's a difficult place for me to try and hold. <laughs> um, but I think that is when I'm at my best and it allows me to focus on what's important to me. Um, but it doesn't, I don't believe in being able to live well and perform better uh, without honing the skills of what it means to confront your inner pain. And so, you know, if we accept that there is a law of nature that says that to gain strength, you know, you, ha you have to push your limits, um, which is painful, it, you know, but it's the premise of a growth mindset. And, you know, corporate culture in the last 10 years or eight years since Carl Dweck wrote her book and Angela Duckworth wrote that book, Grit, you know, and Adam Grant talks a lot about growth mindset. 
and everyone's really, really behind it. You know, there's, there's no end to the bandwagon uh, on growth mindsets. But I think in order to really get to that place and be, and be conditioned for that, you have to be able to work through the eye of the needle on a lot of stuff that's difficult for you and painful and be held accountable to it. And, um, you know, I met with, with your great colleague and my wonderful coach, Dave Gribben, uh, recently. And I've worked with Dave for 11 years. Um, and he said to me, if you were to go back to when you were leaving corporate life, you know, 18 months ago, after 17 years, um, you know, what, what advice do you think you'd give yourself now? And I said, I'd probably say to myself, don't start asking what it is you want to do. You know, because I, I, was, I, was, I kind of had this blank canvas and, you know, I, I wasn't leaving to go somewhere. It was like, I just need to take some time out and decide what I'm going to do next. And I said, I think I go back and I tell myself, how much pain are you willing to tolerate to figure this out? Because it's been so, it's been so difficult you know, at times. And of course it is. That's the nature of a transition. It's the nature of uncertainty. And it's the nature of um, getting, getting good at, uh, in, uh, about accepting confusion. And you don't get anywhere without that. So I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Uh, then I was thinking, you know, maybe this rap line should be hurt well, live better. <laughs> I don't think that would sell much, though, as a marketer. I don't think I'd advocate that. Uh, but there is something, I think, about, you know, the, the the need to like sometimes all this stuff can get marketed with all the upside and there's no real kind of consideration given to what does it take to actually be able to hone a growth mindset or to be in a place of you know better performance um and i think the bit that none of us really want to talk about is being able to is being able to tackle that, that the more difficult aspects of your character your behaviors your attitudes or how you're showing up or whatever it is um, and the other side of it, I think, as well, is that we live in a Western culture driven by individualism and this kind of incessant need to optimize for self-actualization. Um, and, you know, I have invested a huge amount in myself. So, you know, I don't want to be hypocritical uh, in what I'm saying. But the bit that makes me nervous that I've seen a lot of is when you, you know, you want to perform really well, but you're not prepared to authentically elevate other people. And I don't believe you can be a high performer without doing that. So, and I think that goes back to that culture of kind of ego and self-actualization. And I think it's difficult to talk about it without talking about privilege. You know, we live in the top, I don't know, 20% of people on the planet who have the privilege to be able to think about what it means to live well and perform better and I think you know I, I just think we need to be careful because there's lots of people that don't have the same access to resources and uh, they're not in the same system or paradigm that maybe you and I and others are in and so if they don't make it does that mean they failed does that mean that they're not going to realize their full potential um so yeah I think it's, it's just a balance between um you know I think you know high performance of the self but then also elevating other people with authenticity um, and, and not in a way that's in, in, in any in any other way that could be misconstrued as anything as authentic because you know, there's plenty of examples where people push other people forward um, or try to hold other people up but it's not legitimate so and I think on the performance side you know I'm, I, I grew up in a in a family of, um, uh, of of medical people everyone in the family is pretty much medical parents and grandparents 
which was an amazing um, environment to grow up in because it was full of kind of just uh, unconditional compassion and care and work, a very strong work ethic. Um, but there was also a big creativity aspect to it because we're a very musical family. So I know all about performance. You know, what does it mean to perform? Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky. I was born with um, a musical ear, so I can play by ear, as well as being kind of classically trained in a few instruments. Um, and I suppose that means that you end up, I think it means you're a really good listener. I'm, I'm a very good listener to plenty of things I'm not good at, but I'm a very good listener. And I think if, you need, if you're going to play by ear, play improv, you know, you're always listening kind of horizontally and vertically to different layers and different vibrations. And I think it, um, it can help with performance. But again, if we're talking about external performance, you know, um, it, you know I can use it to manipulate a situation. You know, I know how to hold a room. Um, uh, and I think, you know, again, you have to go back to that question, who are you performing for and, and to what end? Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's just, it's important. You know, that was another thing about corporate life that I, I was very good at, but I, I didn't really enjoy it. The, you know, it's the nature of working in a large organization anywhere uh, is that, you know, you have to, there's a performative nature to what you're doing. You need to market yourself. You need to market your work. You need to market your team and your ambition. And um, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't really enjoy it enough uh, to sustain it. And I felt that I was kind of abandoning a version of my own self um, for the comfort of other people uh, in order to fulfill their expectations. So, uh, you know, I've probably gone too analytical on it, um, but uh, I think performance is, is, um, can be a double-edged sword. Uh, I just think you need to be really clear and careful about, you know, what the performance is all about. I'm, I'm trying now to kind of join some dots between, you mentioned, you know, you've, you've worked with Dave Gribben on, on coaching. You've spoken about confronting inner, inner pain. And you've also spoken about living now without uh, trying to live more without attachment so i'm just wondering could you just articulate for me or just give me your experience of what what has it been like to confront some of that inner pain and how that how that translates to trying to live now without attachment yeah it's um i have to say one of the greatest um experiences of my you know i'd say professional career but really of, of my life has been working with dave um and uh, he's enormously talented um, and it's just wonderful at, at holding me accountable to myself um, and so to answer your question I think one example is you know when I was getting very kind of caught up and bent out of shape as Dave says um, work working in a in, in a company a few years ago and um, you know I was sitting with Dave and I was explaining to him where I was at and he was trying to understand my kind of the behaviors that was driving what I was saying and, you know, my mindset. And, um, and, and one of the things he said to me that has always stuck with me, and I think about it every week, um, is, you know, I was, I was complaining um, and uh, giving out. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, you know, um, what, what role are you playing in co-creating this context? And to which, of course, I was slightly horrified that he would suggest that I was part of any of this. Um, but it was it was really useful as a question because it forced me 
to really see myself on the same playing field as all these other people. Um, and uh, I suppose, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the trauma triangle of where, you know, the victim, villain, hero. And um, it's really useful construct to use to try and understand, OK, if I'm feeling like a victim, then what do I need to do to flip that, um, you know, to, uh, to, to change, to, not just to change the narrative, but to really change my behavior and change my mindset. So, you know, every week I do a lot of journaling. And then that was a question that I started to ask myself every week was, you know, if I'm feeling like X or Y and I have evidence to prove that that's real, then what role am I playing in co-creating that? And um, Dave will say that I am, you know, on a, on a bad day, overly analytical. So I have to be careful not to go too deep into the weeds. But um, I think it's really refreshing because it allows you to stand outside yourself. And, you know, I think if you're up for being honest with yourself um, and learning, because really that's what drives it. It's the curiosity and the learning to understand how I can, you know, um, be improving my sense of self and, and getting feedback from people, you know, going actively, I had to go out and talk to loads of people then, Dave said to me, you know, it would be helpful actually if you sat down with these three people and you spoke to them about these things. And then you, another piece of advice he gave me at the time, which was just fantastic, um, and it totally changed everything for me, was you need to sit down and recalibrate three or four of these relationships. You just need to sit down and recontract with these people. And there was no, most of the stuff, like I think an awful lot of these problems, certainly in the working world, are kind of implicit. You know, there had been no event. There was no major issue. It was just um, messy and stuff had gotten lost in translation over time. So I sat down and I, re, you know, I recalibrated these relationships. And I, you know, said, you know, here's what I, here's what you can expect from me. Here's what I expect of you. And you can call me out on these things. And guess what? I'm going to call you out on those things. And so everybody signed up to it. And it was a really simple, you know, half an hour lunch with all these people, with these various, very different people. Um, but it was just incredible um, what it, I suppose, yielded and unlocked for me. And also, you know, you, you spoke earlier as well about elevating other people. Um, and I'm sure through that process, even that that's that's a way that you can elevate people. But that's that's also not being prepared to even consider elevating others until you've you've taken a look at yourself and your behaviors and how you're showing up yeah exactly and it's the it's the humility in that you know and i've done a lot of work with dave on understanding what my values are and you know really getting clear about them uh, and one of them you know is humility um, and my number one one is integrity so you know i have to then be accountable uh, on every side of the equation if I'm really going to try and I suppose honor those values and then live live a life that I uh, feel is um is one of contentment and fulfillment um, based on that so yeah picking up on the living with um less attachment you know what's how's that playing out for you or how's that um working oh. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's just like a major rewiring of the operating system. Um, you know, because in uh, when you're not working for yourself, <laughs> it's really clear what your you know your the outcomes and the goals need to be, right? And it's usually aligned to a quarterly earnings or you know whatever it is. And I was operating at a pretty senior level um, in in most of the organisations I was at. So. Um, uh, I suppose, you know, 17 years of being wired and trained that way to then suddenly uh, 
start to think about not being attached to outcomes. And David, you know, we had spoken a lot about it over the years, but it's very difficult to be in one system where the whole incentive system is designed in such a way that, you know, your survival can be dependent on you and making sure that you are very wired to all of these outcomes. <laughs> so to suddenly, you know, be to, to try and let go of that is difficult when you're inside it. So now that I'm outside of, um, you know, a large organization, um, I, it's, it's very confronting. It's, it's very difficult. You know, it demands a level of, I suppose, being philosophical. Um, that is, again, not really in keeping with the times that we're in because we're a culture driven by busyness and productivity. And so it's all about, you know, what you're delighted to announce on LinkedIn, you know, every two weeks um, or, uh, or else you're probably not doing much or don't, no need to pay attention to, to, to you. So um, it's going back. It's, I think it's been go- about going back to what am I motivated by? And I'm motivated intrinsically. I'm not motivated by externalization or accolades or, um, and it's fine for people who are, but I'm not. So um, that probably makes it a little bit easier to not be attached to, to certain outcomes. But I would be lying if I said that I haven't felt very, uh, very down at times and very despairing and very upset at times when certain things in the last 18 months haven't panned out the way I, I had hoped, you know, because it's something in, in a massive conflict with this idea, isn't there? Like we, we are wired as people to be focusing on progress and some level of creativity. Doesn't matter what you're doing, you're probably creating something for progress. Um, and that's ultimately goal orientated. And so suddenly to then say, you can have a goal, you can't be emotionally attached to the outcome as to whether it happens or not kind of feels like I need to train to be a Buddhist monk, you know? Um, so, but I think the, the general uh, thrust of the intention is, is very valuable. And I have, um, it's amazing because it brings you to all sorts of interesting places and people when you do let go of certain expectations. And I think I've, I've really enjoyed that, but it's, um, it's very difficult. You know, every day I have to remind myself about it and work on it actively. So um, it's, uh, yeah, very, very deliberate work. <laughs> it's not coming quite naturally to me just yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think the other thing that we as human beings like is certainty. We like predictability. We like certainty. And um, when we don't get it, that could be really tricky for us. But I, I'm also, it's interesting what you said about music and uh, you know, and, and a classical piece of music, the, the music is written out, it never changes, you put it in front of you. And if you're able to sight read, and if you have that skill, which is a fantastic skill, you can do it. But you take that away and you say, here's a couple of chords, um, find your way, you know, but it you, you're, you're, you're very at home in that space too. So it's almost like that's, uh, it's almost like you're, you're just learning to bring more of that into, you know, quote, quote unquote, normal life, if you like. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a great, uh, it is a really good analogy. And I think, you know, I've, I've rarely taken a pre-existing role in my career. I've always been in a new role doing the new thing for the new thing that we're not quite sure about. And we don't really have a job description. So if you could just get in there and figure that out for us, that'd be great. Thanks. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, having that um, sense of Im- improvisation and uh, a level of, uh, I, I suppose, risk taking 
um, that I don't, I, I can be very risk averse about many things, but that's not one thing that I'm, uh, I, I feel particularly kind of um, threatened by. And uh, it, it, it also reminds me of this really interesting thought experiment that I came across when I was, you know, I took a few months off when I first stepped away from um, uh, my previous role. And, um, you know, David had been saying to me, you know, you need to ask yourself, you know, what's important to you in this life? You know, what life do you want to live? You know, um, and I came across this thought, this thought experiment by a philosopher, a contemporary philosopher called um, Roman um, Krisnerich, I think is his name. I'm sure that's his name, but I'm sure I've mispronounced it, so I apologize. Um, and his philosophy is all around, what does it mean to be a good ancestor? And so he says, um, uh, you know, you're going to go to, you're, you're going to die. And in the immediate aftermath of passing on from this world, you're going to go to a dinner party in your afterlife. And um, around the table of that dinner party is all the versions of you that could have been. And the question is, who do you want to sit beside? And it was probably before I decided to leave, you know, and was thinking about, you know, where am I going? What am I doing? It was, it was just a really powerful way of um, setting out, you know, we have approximately 4,000 weeks on this planet. Um, and if I want to uh, recalibrate my relationship with time, um, which I think many of us uh, need to do just in terms of the spirit of focus and getting the right things out of your experience of life. Um, it was brilliant and, and people I've told about it since they get really <laughs> I think people get really stressed when they hear there's a dinner party and they think you know there's all these people around the table and you're going to have to choose but it's actually just different versions of who you could have been so uh, yeah it was another useful way to think about um, you know what what direction do I want to go in but not be overly attached to particular you mentioned um journaling is something that you you do uh weekly but i'm just wondering are there any other practices habits behaviors that you engage in to help you you know with this idea of living well performing better um yeah there are there are a few um i spend quite a lot of time reading and and writing so i i you know i really believe that there's a big difference between knowledge and understanding um, and so if you really want to test yourself on how well you know something, then you need to be able to write it down um, because writing forces you <laughs> to have to construct, you know, your, uh, your opinion and your, your point of view. And, you know, using the Richard Feynman technique of, um, you know, I suppose the principle of simplicity. So you write it down, uh, explain it to a 12 year old, get your feedback, keep refining it until it gets simpler and simpler. Um, and I think there's another part of that as well that is really useful, which comes from Charles Munger, who's Warren Buffett's business partner, who talks about, you know, if you really want to feel that you understand something, you should be able to argue the opposing side very fluently. And so kind of inverting your thinking. And I think that's really important today because we are living in echo chambers and filter bubbles of information. Um, and so, so yeah, so I spend, you know, uh, quite a lot of time learning uh, in the areas in which I'm working um as well as kind of self-development um i play music <laughs> because it's um you know like another language to me um and you know i take 
uh, take daily exercise. But the things I get the most out of are probably the, the learning and connecting with, with people I love and uh, playing music. And then every every month I try and get home to Sligo, which is where I'm from. So I have a deep spiritual connection with, with home. And uh, it's really important to me. I start to feel really uncomfortable if I don't get to Sligo every couple of weeks. <laughs> so... So yeah, they're they're kind of my they're kind of my rituals. My next question is around wh- where do you see the world right now? As um, particularly with what in everything you've just articulated around what you're doing now and your own purpose as you see it. Yeah, it is. It goes back to that big debate, isn't it? Of deep thinkers' um, philosophy of progress versus other people who believe we're not making progress at all. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I think the the main the main challenges that I the I hear from people I do a good bit of informal mentoring but things that I hear most from people is the level of overwhelm uh, that they're experiencing um, that I think is driven by anxiety uh, and is driven by a lot of the noise that we've already talked about um, and I suppose the need for people to so I think people want to be able to slow down but they can't uh, they feel they can't and so they can't they can't ask for what they need um, and being able to articulate what they need becomes very difficult. Uh, and so I think that's, that's the biggest trend for me over the last few years, you know, before the pandemic or anything like that, I think in the last decade, certainly, um, I think this, the level of, of anxiety that we're seeing uh, and there's obviously an awful lot of mental health problems as well, but we're not, we're not good at, tackling it because you know we're only we're only getting to grips with beginning to talk about it at a more open level as a society and and, and in the world um but certainly on the um you know when, when you're bringing yourself to work it, it gets complicated you know when people are trying to understand each other um, and so i do i do believe in in solitude and you know that french philosopher's uh famous quote blaise pascal that said that all of um, man's or humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Um, and I know so many people, you know, might be listening to this thinking, yeah, well, that chance that's going to happen for me. You know, I've got all these things I've got to do. And um, but I think taking pressing pause, as uh, you uh, all you folks in below the line uh, used to say, is is really really important. Um, I read a great book a few years ago called The Seventh Sense by a guy called Joshua Cooper, and it was all about the age of networks um, driven you know, by technology, but not just technological networks, like what that will mean for you know, geopolitics, what it will mean for education, what it will mean for everything. And um, slightly, you know, uh, I suppose, uh, depressingly, he said, you know, what will the, the number one affliction in the 21st century will be insanity, um, purely because we're not built for this. We're not made for this level of information. And to you know be taking in so much content and information constantly all day long, whether it's news or it's all the notifications or whatever it is. So I think that is the biggest challenge. You know, we've talked a lot about what it means to live well and perform better. And you know, I'm I'm in a very privileged position and have, have been able to invest in myself and take the time um, to do it. And yes, it takes courage and it takes tenacity, but ultimately. It's, it's a privilege to be able to do it. Um, and I think if you can do it, you owe it to yourself to, to make that as an investment because um, 
you know, as Carl Jung says, the world will ask you who you are. And if you don't know, the world will tell you. Uh, and so it's it's really important that people feel a sense of agency around understanding who they are. Um, and I think at the moment, the vast, not the vast majority, but the vast majority of people I speak to or speak to me about this say that they're just really, really overwhelmed and can't really you know, unpack everything to understand where they're going, where they want to be going, what they want to be doing and what they want to get out of life. Yeah, my colleague, uh, my other colleague in Below the Line, Jerry Hussey, talks about the, you know, the disease of distraction um, and the disease that it causes within us and in our minds and our bodies, et cetera, et cetera. And I think yeah, you've articulated that very well. Um, and then my last question then, um, what's the one piece of advice you would give to anyone who's looking to live well and perform better in whatever way that might apply to them or mean to them? Um. I, I think it would be, you know, in investing in understanding um, deep down what is it that matters to you, you know, um, and it is, it is an investment, um, but it's really, I think it's really important because it almost is the cornerstone, it's like a compass then, it's, it's a solid compass that won't promise you the sun, moon and stars, won't give you everything you want but it keeps you close to your values. I think if you don't understand what your values are, you can get really untethered and feel really um, discombobulated, which is a word I absolutely love and doesn't get used enough. Um, but, <laughs> but that feeling, like you just said, that Jerry uh, speaks a, a lot about as well, that this ease, you know, you just feel out of sync with yourself and who you are and you can't put your finger on it. And I think it's because people don't often know what it is they need. And I think your needs stem from your values. So it is this kind of systemic approach. I saw this brilliant visual the other day that is basically an iceberg. And using your language, there is, you know, above the surface line and below the surface line. But at the tip of the iceberg, it kind of talks about there's loads of events that happen at the tip of the iceberg because it's exposed to the macro environment and it's constantly changing and shifting geologically. Um, and then at the surface level, there is, you know, you start to see the kind of patterns of erosion of, of what all those events are culminating in. And then below the surface, um, what you see, what you need to address is the kind of the structures associated with this iceberg and its, you know, ultimate kind of sustainability. And at the very bottom are the mindset. And so I think if you take that approach to understanding where you're at, you know, what are the events that are happening for you that are really activating you or triggering you and disturbing you? And then what is that at a pattern level? And then below the surface, then you get into what are the structures that are in place in your life? Could be habits, could be rituals, could be all sorts of different contexts uh, to understand how to unpack that. And then what are the mindsets that um, you know, we need to address that can help make that shift or help make that realization around, you know, actually these are your values or this is actually the most important thing in your life. Maybe it's being you know, a, a great father or you know, maybe it's looking after your elderly parent or whatever it is you know it, it can be doesn't have to be absolutely um you know world changing but i think if you're not clear on that um i think your decisions can you know the way you make decisions and the decisions you make can be precarious and you can end up and um, i think feeling in pretty deep water pretty quickly so um so yeah i think the investment the investment is definitely worth it dave said to me last summer and um, he said you know so what is you know, when you look back over the last decade, you know, what, what, what are the things you've really learned? And I said, well, you know, 
comes from all the work I've done. And he said, well, what is the work? And I said, well, it's the work, the work that we've done, you know, <laughs> this kind of um, very loose language and, a, you know, an implicit understanding that he knew what I was talking about. And he said, but I don't understand what you mean. And I said, of course you do. And he said, no, but what is it, Claire? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't have an applet for a topology, but it got me really thinking about what is the work? So I started to create my own atlas of what it is. And I've, I've done that um, to really understand what are my, what is my purpose in life? What are my values, my principles, my strengths, my weaknesses, and to be using it every day with humility to try and understand, you know, where I'm going, but not being overly attached to it either. But it just helps me make sense of um, where I'm at and where, where I think I'm going. Uh, but yeah, I think, the work is very important. <laughs> Fantastic. Listen, Claire, we'll draw to a close there, but I could talk to you for hours more, but um, it's been it's been fascinating. Um, you've drawn all sorts of threads together from philosophy to technology to music. Um, it's been wonderful. So thanks very, very much for your time. And I wish you every success now with your your next. Um, well, really, as you work out the next chapter, um, free free from attachment. Yeah, thanks, Melian David. It was great. Thank you for inviting me.